At this time, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles as we turn our attention now to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 4. Today, we're going to begin in verse 12. Um, Before I read the text for you, I just want to share with you a story from when I went to seminary uh, in 2013. I moved down to Kentucky, and I had been working at a church here in New York. And before that, I had a variety of jobs. So I had had work uh, in, in... on the eighth floor of the largest advertising agency in the world. I had, I had worked in a company making truck parts. I had worked as an English teacher. I had been overseas as a missionary. I had worked a bunch of jobs. I was on the, a DJ on the radio for a couple of years. And when I went to seminary, I was shocked at how hard it was to find a job. It was the first time in my life where I was like, it's impossible to find a job. And finally, I got a job at Chick-fil-A. And I worked there for a grand total of two weeks. But on my first day when I was working there, I had a, a person training me who was, had just turned 16. And he was training me about how to clean the tables. And he said to me, he goes, have you ever cleaned a table before? And I, I was thinking, <laughs> I don't actually know uh, if I've ever cleaned a table before. But he, he had this... Um, this uh, question of, like, do you actually have any idea what you're, what you're doing? And so he explained to me how you clean a table, which is by taking the rag and moving slowly across one way and then the other and this way. So you keep the crumbs in front of the rag. Do you see how I'm doing it? Can, all right, you try. All right. And in my heart, my, there was so much pride. I was becoming so arrogant thinking, I know how to clean a table. I know how to do this. I've been doing this since you were in kindergarten. And in my heart, that's how I was feeling. But I shouldn't have felt that way towards him. He was doing his best, and he was training me as he was told to by the company. And I was, in my heart, just being incredibly arrogant. Now, with that in mind, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray over the hearing and the reception of the word. Our Father God in heaven, I ask that today as we come before this text of scripture that we would be humbled by it. Although it is focused primarily at a young pastor, God, I I pray that we would see that this has implication and application for every one of us who are in Christ. And I pray, God, that today we would be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. He alone gives the growth, and I pray, God, that that would happen for us today that we might walk out of this room different because of you. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to therefore live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the course of this chapter, Paul has primarily focused in on telling Timothy how to be a good pastor, and that's going to continue today as Paul's instructions now are going to become even more personal. Last time we were in 1 Timothy, we heard Paul encouraging Timothy to pursue godliness. But what does that even mean? Well, the obvious answer is that it means that we are to be like God. 
but there are obvious problems with that simple definition because there are a lot of ways that you and I can never be like God. For example, if I said to you, you need to be more like God, you cannot all of a sudden decide to be all-powerful or all-knowing or in all places at one time. That is impossible. Those are what are called the incommunicable attributes of God, and there are many of them. But there are communicable attributes of God, meaning they are things that we ourselves can be conformed into, that we can imitate, that we can pursue. These are the character traits of God. So in what way are we supposed to pursue being like Him? What does that look like in the life of a believer? Well, it begins with an inward devotion to God that results in an outward display of dedication to God. I think that's a helpful definition. I think that's one worth repeating, that godliness is an inward devotion to God that results in an outward display of dedication to God. So today, we are going to consider six categories of godliness that Paul outlines for pastors primarily, but this is also true of all believers in many ways. So as much as these words are pointing explicitly to me this morning, they are also pointing implicitly toward you. First, let's see that we are to be a godly example. Paul begins this section by encouraging Timothy to lead by example. Look again at verse 12. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, remember what we've learned recently about the word despise. It does not mean hate when it's used in the Bible. When you use that word in modern English vocabulary, usually people are saying it to be like worse than hatred. I despise them. I I hate them. I despise them. They are the worst. No, here it simply means to think nothing of them. Don't let anyone think nothing of you. So Paul is encouraging Timothy not to allow this church in Ephesus to think nothing of him or of his leadership. Back in early 2016, when we had just recently planted Redeeming Grace Fellowship, the church where I was pastoring at the time, uh, a couple came and visited RGF, and after the service ended, I had a few minutes to talk with them, and the husband seemed absolutely enthralled with our little church plant. He could not stop talking about how much he loved our little church plant, which at the time, we had like 20 adults, I think, in church that Sunday, and he, was, he and his wife were two of them. It was a glorious thing to have visitors, and I was so encouraged by them, and he seemed to be so excited about what God was doing there, but his wife said no less than four times in five minutes, you're just a baby to me. And she would repeat that after she had asked my age and what seminary I had gone to, and she would say, you could be one of my kids. You're younger than my youngest. You're just a baby. Now, after church, my wife mentioned to me that she had also had an opportunity to speak with them, and she thought they were gastic about the church. And I said, listen, I guess, if I had to guess, we're never going to see them again. Not because the husband, but because the wife could not possibly listen to me. She despised my youth. Now, I promise I was not the pastor, perfect pastor then, and I am not a perfect pastor now. But it was clear that the one sticking point that she had was my age. The one sticking point that she had with our church was that she could not see herself listening to God's word from somebody who was younger than her youngest child. Now, but there are also many people who are in that position where I was who would demand to be heard or to demand respect without earning it. All right, how do you do the crumbs on the table, right? You've got to actually do it to earn respect. 
Now, Paul does not tell Timothy to bludgeon people with his authority. He does not tell Timothy, just tell people to listen to you, Timothy. Just get in their faces and command them to hear what you're saying. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, if you want them to follow you, then you have to lead them by example. Maturity and wisdom do become evident, but they never become evident immediately. It never happens instantaneously. These things take time as you observe someone's life. Consider the categories of godly character that Paul highlights here. He begins with speech. One of the things that pastors do often is talk. I think you know this. Preaching, teaching, exhortation, admonition, rebuke, counseling, comforting, fellowshipping, hospitality, all of these things are primarily centered around words. Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Your words say a lot about who you really are. And as someone who is called to pastor the flock, they should serve as an example in the way that they speak. Pastors should be honest and gentle and pure in the content of their speech. They should not mock or gossip or flatter. And their words should be used to give glory to God and praise to others around them who serve the Lord well. But this is not just true of pastors. This is certainly true of each and every one of you as well. But pastors are to lead in terms of conduct. If you have children, then you know that your children model themselves after you. Uh, They speak in the way that you speak. They do the things that you do. Every one of my children, about the time that they turn two, have done this one super cute thing. There is a unique... Uh, something that is not unique amongst them. There's a trend amongst my children, and perhaps it's true for all children. But I saw my youngest son, Caspian, do this just the other day for the first time that I had ever seen, and that is he will go to the door, and he will get down my shoes, and he puts my shoes on his tiny feet and begins to try to walk in my shoes. Every one of my children has done that about this age. Why is that? Because children imitate their parents. And what Paul is teaching Timothy here is that People in the church will imitate their pastor. Pastors are called to walk in such a manner that they lead by example. How does your pastor treat his wife? Or how does he parent his children? Or how does he enjoy entertainment? How do your pastors treat those who have no ability to return any kindness to them? There's so many ways you can observe their kindness. There's so many ways that you can observe their life. Pastors are called to lead in love. Genuine Christian love means sacrificially giving of yourself in practical ways. It means laying down comfort in order to serve kindly and patiently. And that's the first category that he mentions here. Then he mentions that they are to lead in faith, trusting the Lord, even in the midst of difficulty, to be an example. And even when it is hard to show people what it looks like to trust Jesus and take him at his word, even when life seems like it is challenging. Pastors are also called to lead in purity. Often when the word purity is used in our modern context, we are often talking about the absence of sexual sin. And that is certainly true, and that's within the scope of what is being said here, but it's certainly not all that is in the scope of what is being said here. This word goes deeper and is much more all-encompassing than that. This word for purity being used here is talking about the purity of one's motives. It is defined really well by one commentator who said, Simplicity, the simplicity of holy motive is followed out in consistency of holy action. So in other words, the only way that you can know what somebody really feels, what they're really uh, motivated to do, is by watching what they do. 
even as I preach these things to you, I know that I have not been a perfect example to you. I know that I have not been, I've fallen short many times. I am not the perfect pastor, and nor is any pastor who would ever stand before you. But God has been gracious to me to forgive me, and God was gracious to Timothy to forgive him in the ways that he had fallen short. And by grace, Timothy and Caleb Bunch and any other pastor that you will ever sit under for the rest of your life has a calling to strive to be an example. But ultimately, I want you to know that every sinner daily stands in need of the grace of God. And every single person who is called into any form of ministry is called to be an example to those around them. And when you inevitably fall short, your responsibility is to run to Christ because he is the only one who has ever been a perfect example for the believers in every one of his words and conduct in love, in faith, and in purity. So in a similar way, you are called to this kind of maturity that you might be a man or a woman of God that is so enraptured by him and in love with him that you would reject sinful patterns of this world. And in doing so, that you would begin to function as an example for others. May we look to Jesus as we strive for this kind of godliness to be present in our own lives. The next thing that Paul uh, instructs Timothy to do is to be a Uh, somebody who is committed to godly teaching. Now, whereas it is certainly true that a pastor is called to lead by example, it is also true that they are to lead by instruction. Look again at the way Paul explains this in verse 13. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation, to teaching. Now, Paul tells us how to operate until he gets there. Notice he says, until I come. Now, this does not mean that there's a final buzzer on these commands, like this was over in the year A.D. 68, and now we no longer have to worry about that because Paul eventually showed up. No, that's not what it means. What he's saying to Timothy is that when I arrive, I will be the one who takes over the responsibilities to do this. But until then, Timothy, it is your job to lead this little flock in charging them and ensuring that the Word of God is central in the church. Similar, in a similar way, we need to constantly be dedicated to God's Word here at Gateway Church. Paul specifically highlights three ways to do that within the congregational setting. First, he says that we are to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. There's a reason that we begin our services on Sundays with a verse on the screen. So that when you come in and you are fellowshipping, you are to turn your eyes to it and to see it and to know what it says and to let that sink into your heart. And then our worship leader will open the service by reading a verse to us to prepare our heart to focus on the Lord. And then what do we do? We sing songs. Where do those songs come from? They are saturated with the Word of God. They have references and quotations from the Word of God so that we can sing the Word. Somewhere in there, there's usually an exhortation of some sort. Sometimes that's given to us like today. We had the Lord's Supper, which is a a unique form of exhortation to the church. Sometimes it will just be a preacher who will stand here and they will proclaim to you uh, how we are to live and to give you instruction about some practical matter of Christian living. And then we are going to sing some more from songs that are saturated by the Word, and then we are going to transition to proclamation of preaching. And then somebody will stand here for about 40 to 45 minutes, and they will explain God's Word. If I was here explaining anything else to you, it might help you live some practical way. I could could talk to you about, you know, the way that you could build a new kitchen countertop, but that would not help you 
in terms of your spiritual life. But if I stand here and I explain to you the Word of God, then there is something of rich value for you. Uh, When we were getting ready to plant a church here on the island, uh, one thing that I did quite a bit was I listened to the preaching of the churches that were in the surrounding area just to get an idea of what was going on. And one time, Ashley and I were listening to a sermon together from one of the pastors in one of the churches, and after it was over, she said, he didn't really say anything wrong, did he? And I said, no, he didn't say anything wrong. He just didn't say anything. He didn't speak about the Word of God at all. There was a passing reference to a scripture that he only used to try to emphasize the point that he was already trying to make. He wasn't going to the Word and trying to open it to the people and tell them, this is what God says, or as the prophets of old would say it, thus saith the Lord. When somebody comes into this pulpit and somebody comes to preach the Word, they are supposed to actually preach the Word. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy here. Now, we want to hear this command, and we want to obey it. We want to ensure that every single Bible study and fellowship gathering and ministry of the church is constantly dedicated to the promotion and declaration and announcement and verbalization of the Scripture that we have received from the Lord that was once for all delivered to the saints. A church that moves away from the Scripture has only worldly wisdom to offer. Regardless of intentions, by removing the Word of God from its rightful place in a church service, churches have made the people of God biblically illiterate. I was speaking to a pastor um, several years ago with whom we would have a lot of philosophical differences in terms of how to operate a church service, and he said to me, you need to really think about the fact that the Sunday morning service is not where you're going to feed the flock. If you're going to do that in your church, it's going to happen somewhere else. That's a time of encouragement. It's not a time to feed the sheep. That is an inaccurate perspective, according to Paul. He says, give them the word, instruct them, and read the word publicly. My son Ace is 10. Ace and I share a love of good food. And my wife is incredibly skillful at making that food. But imagine if I said, Ace, buddy, from now on, we're not going to feed you. From now on, if you want food, that's up to you, man. You, if you, I mean, get a job, you can, you can figure it out. Now, if we were to say that to any of our children, first of all, that would be neglect. Would it be good for him? No. He's 10. Some children in that situation will only choose to eat unhealthy food. Some people in that position would be unable to procure any food, and some would just simply choose not to eat enough food. Now, that's exactly what the church does to its members when they say to them, hey, you know what? You figure it out. This time is not a time for you to receive the word. This is a time for me to encourage you, and then I will encourage you to go find food on your own. Get out there and figure it out. Now, Paul does not say to do that for the church. He says, Set the word at the center. Paul also says to Timothy, and by extension to other pastors as well, that when we gather, we are to exhort the people. I love the word exhortation. It's a great word. And it means to winsomely instruct and encourage someone to obey. Winsomely instruct and encourage to obey. It is not a corrective term. It is one saying, 
I think this is something that would benefit you so much, and I want to lovingly reveal to you the kindness of God that he has shown us how to live in a way that is good for us and glorifying to him. It's a way to spur people on to the right way of thinking. And there are various ways that we choose to do that here at Gateway. Most importantly is through what we did this morning, through the Lord's Supper, where we put before ourselves the central element of what God's Word is always teaching, the cross. That is at the middle of every single scripture. It is all pointing towards Jesus, and Jesus' entire life and ministry was pointing towards the substitutionary atonement that took place at the cross. This is a meal designed by God to exhort us toward worship of Christ as we remember and as we proclaim. We also have some church leaders who will sometimes give short encouragements like that here in the pulpit on other times. Sometimes we'll have people share their testimonies. That's another form of exhortation. Sometimes we will have people take moments of fellowship where they will intentionally encourage one another. Now, because of COVID, we've taken that a little bit to the back seat for a while. But one of the things we are told to do when we, when we rise and when we fellowship and encourage one another is to exhort one another. This is not just a, man, a command for Christians, as we see at the end of 1 Corinthians and at the end of Romans. This is something you are to do as well. Exhort one another. Sometimes we'll have a missionary or a minister speak about what God is doing in them and to exhort the church to pray for and support those ministries and those missionaries faithfully. Just as a, a, an example, I want to share with you that today you will not see the Neglia family here. Today the Neglia family is in Huntington, and they are at a church that desperately needs encouragement, a church that has not officially had a lead pastor for 12 years, and that they are discouraged. And this week I was communicating with them about what in the world can we do? And they were asking us for help. And by God's grace, he has given us an abundance. So by God's grace, we are going to be sending people to fill their pulpit every Sunday, at least until the end of April, and then we'll continue to help them to find and procure a pastor that can support them. Every Sunday, you will notice that I will be asking people to go and to be with them. So this morning, you're not going to see Francesco Loverde or Kathy Sutton. Why not? because I have asked those two members to go and visit that church today, not so that they will remain, but so that they will exhort the believers there. And so when I speak to you at, at some point in the future and say, hey, would you be willing to take a Sunday off from Gateway and just go visit our friends over there in Huntington who need some encouragement, who need some love, would you be willing to do that? I would love it if you were to say yes. And by asking you to do that, I am exhorting you, I am winsomely asking you to take a step in faith towards obedience to Christ in a way that is sacrificial. Lastly, you'll see here that Paul calls Timothy to be a godly leader by teaching the church. Now, even though my kids have come in rapid succession, I always forget when they are born just how little they are. We're getting ready to have another one pretty soon. Uh, Ashley is due on the 22nd of this month, so quite literally she might be in contractions while she's teaching the babies downstairs. I'm not really sure, but it's possible that any day now could be the day. And when that baby comes, like right now, it seems so big because it's inside. And then, then when it comes out, I forget how small babies really are. When they are first born, I forget how tiny they fit into your hands. Well, you know when somebody comes to Christ, they are referred to in scriptures as infants in the faith. They are just tiny babies. That little baby can literally do nothing by itself. 
In fact, the first time it comes out, you have to kind of tap it to help it breathe because it's been inside liquid its entire existence. Every step of the way, you have to assist the baby in growing. And when somebody comes into the faith, they come in as infants, and every single thing that you know about Christ and that you have learned about living for Christ, they need to know. They need to grow, and you need to teach them. Otherwise, they will not know. Now, that is primarily the responsibility of the pastor. The pastor is to lead the church by teaching the Word of God. But that is also the responsibility of every single one of you. If you have been in the faith at all for even just a few weeks or months, there is growth that you have that a new believer will not have. And here's one of the amazing things. You might have been a Christian for 50 years, and there is somebody who has been a Christian for one day, yet God will bless them with an area of maturity very quickly that he has been working slowly in you so that by mutual encouragement, they are actually still able to teach you in an area where you are weak as you teach them in an area where they are weak. And so we have this opportunity to serve one another in teaching the Word. But notice it is not to teach ourselves. It is really easy to try to make people conform to the way that we like to do things. But here he says that what we are to teach is not ourselves. It is to teach the Word. God takes very seriously the mind of the believer. And we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some churches choose to prioritize the feeling or style or cultural relevance of the church at the expense of faithfully teaching the Word of God. And at Gateway, it is our desire and our hope to always be a church that loves to hear the preached Word and to always receive the teaching of the Word accurately. The next forms of godliness that Paul highlights for Timothy is the form of godly stewardship. Now, in verse 14, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Let's first answer the question, what exactly is the gift that's being spoken about that Timothy has? We see Paul also remind Timothy of this gift in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. It seems like this is the same gifting that is mentioned previously. Now here is what we do know about this gift. We know that it is not speaking about salvation because salvation is never spoken about coming through the laying on of hands. It is possible that this is speaking about one of the spiritual gifts, such as the gift of leadership or the gift of administration or the gift of teaching. Others argue that this gift that is being referenced here, is the calling to be a pastor in the local church. Now, I lean in the direction of saying that this was probably a particular spiritual gift that the Lord gave to Timothy so that he might lead that church well. And Timothy was told that he must not neglect the gift that was given to him. This means that he must foster it, that he must perfect it. He must work hard to sharpen it. He cannot think little of it or become rusty in it. So here's the question for you. What gift has the Lord given you? Is it one that you have sharpened and fostered, or is it one that you have laid to the side and ignored? Are you using the gifts that the Lord has given to you so that you might serve the body faithfully and strengthen them? By God's grace, that is the calling not just of Timothy and not just of pastors, but it is the call of every single one. We are not to squander our gifts. Find ways to bless the body and honor God with them. So actively strive 
to serve the Lord and to use your gifts wisely. This idea flows nicely into the next form of godliness that Paul commands Timothy, namely godly consistency. In verse 15 we read, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Several years ago I was speaking with Chris Arnzen. He is the he runs a radio show called Iron Sharpens Iron, a Christian show. And Chris asked me if I would be willing to come on and just talk about something. And I was like, uh, look, Chris, I, I really don't know if I have anything to say. And he just kind of sat back and he folded his arms and he goes, aren't you a pastor? And to be honest, the real reason I didn't want to say anything, the reason I didn't want to go on his show is because I was nervous about publicly saying something foolish or being asked a question that I didn't know how to answer in front of a radio audience. And I, and I didn't want to look like a fool. And Chris rebuked me and he said, look, aren't you a pastor? Don't you preach every Sunday? Just come on the show and just use your gift, Caleb. Just use your gift. Now, sometimes we don't practice our gifts and we don't grow in them because of fear, which was the instance in this point for me. Sometimes we don't because we're just lazy. Sometimes we don't prioritize them because we prioritize other things. But Paul exhorts Timothy to immerse himself in his gifting. Why should he do that? Paul says, so that all may see your progress. Now, let me try to clarify this for a moment because Scripture is very clear that we are not to be show-offs. We are not supposed to do our good works before men in order to be seen by them. We are not to even let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. So Paul is encouraging something, but it's definitely not saying, show off your gift. In fact, if you're going through the shepherding notes that we are walking through in 1 Corinthians right now, you will see that that is one of the main things he is telling the 1 Corinthian church to stop doing. Stop saying that you are better than others because of the gift that you have. And that will become very evident over the next six chapters we'll we'll be going through this week. Instead, Paul here is is helping Timothy to grow into his role as pastor of the flock, and he is helping Timothy by telling him to grow in his gifts. He is not suggesting that Timothy should get the glory for these things, But there are very few things more encouraging in the life of a church than watching Christians grow in their gift. How wonderful is it when you see Jonathan Rodriguez and the way that he has grown to be such an excellent communicator of the Word of God? How awesome has it been to watch the Arnoux boys and Anthony Piero growing up and leading the music with us here on the stage and seeing them use their gift for the service of the body? How amazing has it been when we see Xiao so hungry to to serve and to want to work in the sound booth, which is the most thankless job in the church. How does it cheer your heart when you receive an encouraging word from Helen Walderman or a card in the mail from Jenny Cotto or when Gideon prays for you or when Gary and Debbie Webb invite you into their home? This is not just encouragement for pastors. Whatever your gifts are, sharpen them, immerse yourself in them, grow in them. And it says, let other people see that you're growing in them. Why not so that you might be glorified? Because that is not your thing. It is a gift given to you. We are to be constantly growing in the way that we use our gift. But we're not to take credit for them. It would be so foolish for me to say, wow, do you see this pulpit? This is... This is an incredible pulpit. Wow. I really deserve a lot of credit for this. You know why? Because somebody gave it to me. So therefore it's mine. And now I can show it off to you. No, I, I have no right to claim any value or any, anything from this because I had nothing to do with this. It was just 
given to me by someone who loved me. If you have a gift that you can serve the church with, you receive no praise or adulation or glory from that because your job is to reflect it all to God the Father who gave it to you. So we are to have godly consistency in the way that we practice our gifts and grow in our gifts. The next category of godliness that Paul highlights is that there is to be oversight in the life of Timothy. So five, godly oversight. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Timothy has a responsibility to guard himself, to guard himself from sin, and to guard himself from doctrinal error. Now, what does it mean to keep a close watch over yourself? Now, here's a universal truth. When we are guilty of something, we tend to want to be uh, given mercy. But when we are innocent and somebody else is guilty, we tend to want justice. Now, it's very important for us to realize that we are often terrible at self-assessment. We go easy on ourselves. When we are the guilty ones, we tend to downplay and say, well, uh, that's not so bad. It's not that big of a deal. But when somebody else does the exact same thing, it's easy for us to see it as a log in their eye. Just like a good shepherd keeps close watch over the flock, guarding them from wolves, so pastors are called to keep close watch over themselves. How are pastors like Timothy supposed to do that? Well, here's a few ways. First, by being accountable to the church. When we covenant together in the church, we are giving each other the right to invade our lives. Your Christian life, as some have said, is personal, but it is not private. We are acknowledging that other people have the right to call us out on sin, and every member of the church is accountable to one another, and that includes the future elders of this church. If you see any sin that is in someone's life, it is your God-given responsibility to follow the process of correction by first approaching that person and calling them to repentance. This is clearly something that all Christians should guard themselves with. Secondly, by we, we have godly um, accountability by being accountable to a community group. Community groups are one of the best places in this church, in our local context, uh, to have this kind of transparency take place, where a small cluster of members who regularly gather together for the purpose of encouraging one another, another and bearing one another's burdens, we are able to do that because somebody will be struggling with sin, and the group is able to pray for and counsel and encourage and fight alongside that person. And as a pastor, this has proven very helpful to me as I have been able to be in groups with people who have cared for my soul well. We can talk about personal struggles. We can talk about need for repentance. Thirdly, we can have this kind of accountability by having a plurality of elders in our church. I cannot tell you how excited I am for April 3rd when we are going to be voting on two other elders to come alongside. Several months ago, when we were hearing from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the list of qualifications for elders, someone after church asked me a question. He said, look, I, I agree that it's good to have multiple elders, but, and I, I know the Bible says we should do it, but what are the benefits of it? I don't even understand. And to be honest, the list is a mile long, but one of the most significant ways that is helpful to me is that I know every single month when I go into a meeting with the other elders, I am going to have an opportunity to be asked difficult questions about how I am doing in terms of my walk with the Lord and in terms of Christian maturity and of purity. I'm going to ask those questions to them as well so that those who are leading the church might lead in terms of maturity and purity. 
Finally, we are to guard ourselves by constantly responding to the Word of God. We are to heed what it says and to be sensitive to its teachings. Likewise, Paul says that pastors are to guard the teaching of the Word, and we are to make sure that the Scripture is being presented accurately and thoroughly. As Paul will explain extensively later in the book, pastors are to watch carefully against wolves in sheep's clothing who will attempt to infiltrate the flock and pollute the teaching or doctrine. One of the saddest things that I ever heard in seminary I think I may have told you this maybe in the last year. I cannot remember, but I, I, I was told one time by a professor, he said to our class, that one of the reasons why the tenure of pastors tends to be so short in churches, which for most Baptist churches is less than three years, the reason that the tenure is so short is because pastors will often go to school, they will study, and they will prepare about three years' worth of material in terms of Bible studies and in terms of sermons, and then they will go and they will present those to a church for three years, and then they will run out of material. And instead of being immersed in the Word and growing in their knowledge of the Word and preparing from the Word, they will then find time to go to a new congregation where they will repeat that same material for three years. And then they will find time to skip to the next church for three years. This is a very sad reality that, that I, I honestly don't know how true that is. This, this man was uh, very involved in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he sa- seemed to think this was prevalent. That is a very discouraging thing. This means that they are never gaining fresh insight from the Word. They are never growing in their understanding. They are simply complacent and lethargic. Other times, pastors can get caught up in something so minute or specific that it's unhelpful to the whole congregation. Or they might get caught up in trends or cultural movements and begin to make that the message of their church. And in doing so, they wander away from the clear teaching of Scripture. And the sad thing is that usually in the beginning, this approach brings lots of people, large crowds. But in the long run, it leaves those under that kind of teaching malnourished as they have been taught something other than the Word of God and been focusing on everything but for many years. They've only heard an unbalanced view of Scripture. And there are also those who begin well, and then they turn away from truth altogether. Uh, growing up, there was a missionary couple that I really loved before they were sent off. They went to Israel to be missionaries. Uh, they actually went to Bethel in Israel, and uh, they were trained in a small church in our town. It's one that I was part of, part of my childhood. And I really liked this guy. He was kind. He was friendly. He often taught the youth group. However, about two years after he made it to the mission field, he and his wife converted to Roman Catholicism. And all of the people who had professed faith in Christ in that group followed into the Roman Catholic Church with him and believed in that false religion. Timothy was called to guard himself, but he was also called to guard the doctrine. And it is important for us to understand that It is the job of a pastor to ensure that he is preaching first to himself, but also preaching faithfully to the congregation. I had somebody ask me about about three years ago, uh, not long actually before the first COVID shutdown occurred actually, and he, he asked me, I just don't understand why your church cares so much about doctrine. And I said, well, the Word of God cares so much about doctrine, and it tells us to guard the doctrine. And why? Timothy was said, uh, told to guard himself and the doctrine in such a way that if you consider what Paul says in Galatians, he says, if I or an angel from heaven should come and preach a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. 
There may be some small differences of, of opinion that we would hold together, but the main points of the Bible we must hold clear and true. We must not waver on them. The gospel is of first importance, and when you hear the word of God being preached in this pulpit, watch to ensure that what is being said aligns with the Bible. For it is that good news and that good news alone that can save you. The last category of godliness in this text is godly perseverance. Verse 16 says, Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Why do we care about doctrine? Because it is by persisting in this that we are able to save both yourself and your hearers. So let me ask, what can Timothy do to save himself? Can any pastor save anyone else? What is Paul getting at here? Obviously, the answer is no. In order to understand what he is saying here, you need to see the way that New Testament speaks about salvation. First, there is justification. This is initial salvation. This is the most common way the New Testament will speak about salvation. This is when God convicts you of sin and he gives you the twin gifts of faith and repentance. This is the most common way that we will ever hear about salvation. Here's an example, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is justification, initial salvation. This kind of salvation is a one-time event. It is the removal of guilt and God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. Everyone who is ever justified will also be glorified, meaning everyone who has experienced true justification will be saved to the uttermost and cannot be unsaved once again. The second kind of salvation that is referenced in the Bible is sanctification. This is perhaps most clearly seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, which says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice that these people are called brothers by Paul. That's a term of salvation. He believes they are in the same kingdom. He says that they both received the gospel and that they stand on the gospel. Yet, he does not say that they are saved. He says that they are being saved. This is a way to speak of progressive sanctification, the process of growth in the believer. Now, we see this another way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have often obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yet on the other side of the coin, for those who genuinely belong to the Lord, we know that it is God who works in us both to will and work for his own good pleasure. This kind of salvation is the outworking of our faith. It is what happens when we are justified and then our justification is played out over the course of our lives. If you have been saved once for all, it will affect every part of your life. And there is a final type of salvation that is spoken about in Scripture, glorification. This is sometimes called final salvation, and it's when we will no longer need to be sanctified because our bodies will be dead. And that flesh that the Bible often speaks about will no longer be a hindrance. And praise be to God, you will never, ever, ever again be tempted towards sin or have any inclination or desire to sin. 
It is when we will finally be with the Father forever. That is final salvation or glorification. And we see this spoken about in a few ways in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 15, at the very first church council, we hear the apostles and the church leaders say, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, consider what's being said. These are the leaders of the church. These are the apostles, and yet they spoke about their salvation not as past and not even as present, but they say, we believe we will be saved, future, and that these others will be saved. Well, what does that look like? Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, those who persevere to the end will be saved. So in what way is Timothy able to save himself and his hearers? By helping them preserve to the end, to persevere in their walk with Christ. Now, I would compare this to Hebrews chapter 10, which is an extended encouragement to the beleaguered and persecuted Hebrew Christians to continue on in the faith. At the end of that chapter, he calls them to continue on the faith and writes, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. The point that Paul is making is that true Christians persevere. It is the hallmark of all who truly believe. And we are called to faithfully follow Christ so that we might help others through the process of sanctification and at some point to eventually receive glorification. So Timothy, preach the word of God, make it central, and be an example to the flock because in doing so you will save yourself. You will walk through that process of sanctifying grace And it will also save your hearers. It will bring them greater sanctification. So let me close by simply thanking God that salvation does not come through a pastor. If he said to me, Caleb, just save those people, I can't do that for you. Thank God that we have justification provided for us because of the cross. Thank God that we are being sanctified now by the Spirit. And thank God that we are going to ultimately be glorified by the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, I thank you so much for your kindness and your love. In particular, I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without instruction regarding godliness, that you tell us how to live upright and godly lives in a crooked and perverse generation. And I pray, God, that you would please allow our church to be a lighthouse of godliness, that we would live for you and display our love for you by responding appropriately to you. God, I thank you for the example of Paul and the way that he communicated these needs to Timothy. And I pray, Lord, that not only as our pastors here at the church, but as every member of the church, we would pursue the use of our gifts. We would sharpen them and strengthen them and use them for the betterment of the kingdom and for the growth of the body. I pray, Father God, that you would please bless our time this afternoon in fellowship with the Providential Fellowship and that we might encourage one another and exhort one another and may your word be central to that gathering and may your name be lifted high. And for the remainder of our time this morning, I pray that you would get all of the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.